Amen. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Welcome. It is good to see you this morning. That was a great song, wouldn't you say? What a great worship song. And it is called Graves to Gardens. Really appreciate Chris bringing that to us. And uh, yeah, I'm glad that uh, the Lord smacked Chris upside the head because I didn't want to have to. And uh, some of you may be wondering why David was so excited this morning. And uh, that's because Clemson, number one in the country, got beat yesterday. So that gives Alabama a chance, finally, uh, to make some headroom. But at any rate, it's good to have you here this morning. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, and find your way to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one of the black Bibles in front of you. You can find the 8th chapter of John on page 840. When you come to Scripture, you're coming to the very word of God. In fact, as Paul says to Timothy, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. The Bible, 66 books written by 40 different authors over, over 1,500 years on three different continents, all superintended by the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. It is God's word to us. In fact, I love what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Let me put it on the screen for you. It should be there, but maybe it's not. Maybe our guys turned it off when they were bringing it up. Maybe, Ryan, you can come down and turn it on or somebody can. But it's up on the screen, so let me give it to you there. Let's listen to what it says. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And then he says this, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There it is. Love it. The Holy Spirit not only brings us his word, but he brings us light. But no prophecy was ever produced, follow the bouncing ball, (laughs) by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a great passage of scripture. We believe that the scripture is God's very word spoken to us. God revealing himself to us through his word. Do you believe that? And then you come to John chapter 8. And you go, "Uh uh-oh. What do I do with this? In fact, in your Bibles, if you look at the textual notes starting in John chapter 7... Verse 53, it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And you're thinking, wait a minute. What's going on with the word of God? Does this upset our confidence in the fact that this is God's word? Well, I would contend just the opposite. The fact is, 
it tells us, the translators tell us that this passage was not in the earliest manuscripts. In fact, there's two places in the Bible where we see that. One is at the end of Mark chapter 16, and, and the other one is right here. So what do we do with this? It's, it's clearly marked out. There is a question whether or not these verses were in the earliest manuscripts or maybe if they actually belonged in Luke. Now, while most scholars agree that they were not in the earliest manuscripts, almost all scholars agree on one thing. This story occurred. It actually happened. In fact, listen to what R.C. Sproul says. God rest his soul. He says, the best manuscripts from iniquity do not include, do not include this story in the gospel of John. That was my fault. At least not this portion of John. At the same time, the overwhelming consensus is that this account is authentic, it's apostolic, and should be contained in any edition of the New Testament, whether it belongs here in John's gospel in Luke's gospel or somewhere else is a question I leave for the ages. And then he says this, but I believe it is nothing less than the very word of God. Listen to what Don Carson says, D.A. Carson. He says, there is little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. James Boyce, one of my favorite authors, pastor, author, uh, uh, scholar, Bible commentator says this. He says, interestingly enough, very few scholars, even liberal ones, seem willing to throw out these verses. I am willing to deal with this story as genuine. Now I'm thinking if Sproul and Carson and Boyce see this as an actual genuine event, certainly we can too. But there's, there's some other reasons I want to just give you quickly. First of all, there's the historical reason that we believe that this is true. In fact, Eusebius, who was a, uh, uh, a, a biblical uh, scholar, or excuse me, a biblical uh, or a, uh, basically a, uh, a church historian, he tells the story of Papias, who died around A.D. 100, who spoke of this story actually happen happening. Secondly, not only historical reasons, but pattern reasons. This is a typical pattern where you see John give an illustration of God's grace, and then he teaches off of that. But I think another reason is that this story is absolutely true to the nature of Jesus Christ. Showing his wisdom and his mercy and his grace and his understanding and his compassion and his forgiveness. In fact, this does not undermine one biblical doctrine that we stand on. In fact, it affirms the doctrines that we stand on. So with that being said... This is a story that illustrates the sin of man and the grace of our Lord. And we're going to teach it as scripture. Because I believe that this was God inspired. Now, the big idea of the message is this. The wages of your sin is what makes God's grace so beautiful. The wages of your sin, what we deserve based on our sin, we deserve death. But it is, it is God's grace is, it, that is so beautiful. And I want you to walk away from this understanding that. 
And I think this is one of those messages that in light of everything that's been going on in the world, and I appreciate Chris introducing that song to us. Sometimes we just need to have our minds looking back to who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us. Let's read this passage. I'll start. And actually, uh, you can see at the beginning of chapter 8, it says, they went each to his own house. Remember, this was the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, this, this great celebration of the wandering in the wilderness and God providing of, of both uh, uh, food, manna in the, in the desert, and, and water out of the flinty rock. It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might, bring some char- that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. So when it comes to sin and grace, what do we learn? Well, first thing that we learn is this. The wages of your sin, death. Very clear, we see it here. The law of Moses makes it very clear. Now, I say it all the time. You got to live in the text. At the end of the day, many of the, at the end of the Feast of the Tabernacles, many people went back to their homes, but some stayed in town. And we see that Jesus went up onto the Mount of Olives. More than likely, he would have gone to the Garden of Gethsemane to do what? To pray. It's what he would do. He would go into the garden. In fact, Judas knew that that's where he would go many times. He would go to the garden. And then it says, in the morning, he comes back to the temple. He draws a crowd and he sits down and he's teaching. So the temple courts would have different various rabbis around the temple courts and they would have their followers come and teach. I mean, you could just imagine what that scene must have been like. It was, it was early morning. It was serene. The, the air would have been cool, kind of like what we felt this morning. Thank you, Jesus. It would have been spirit-filled. It would have been encouraging. But then all of a sudden, there's all of this commotion. And it says the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they barge in and they're, they're pushing this woman into the group. Look what it says in verse 3. It says the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in her midst. And they said to him, teacher, this woman is caught in the act of adultery. I'm thinking, how rude can you get? How inappropriate. Not like, excuse me, Lord, can we have a, a word with you? I mean, these guys had an agenda. And it's so clear. Now, who are the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, the scribes, and I think it's, it's important to understand them, to understand maybe a little bit about their motivation. 
the scribes were, they were Jewish theologians. They were lawyers. They were experts in the law. I mean, they knew the law inside and out, every jot and every tittle. And then you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees were part of the ruling class. They were part of the, the Sanhedrin. There were, there were approximately 6,000 Pharisees in Israel. They were, the, they were learned. They were actually a movement of conservatives. They were, they were a political party, if you will. They were the ones that, pra- they didn't just know the law, they would practice the law to a T. I mean, they would, they would get so overwhelmed with having missed any part of the law. They were committed to spiritual purity, to moral and theological reform. They were passionate, they were passionate about keeping the law, but they were even more passionate about you keeping the law. That was their focus. And so you have these two groups, the scribes and the Pharisees, that all of a sudden are pushing this, this young girl into this group. In the midst of it, these keepers of the law, they miss the two greatest commandments. What are the two greatest commandments? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself to love God and to love others. But you don't see that here. What you see is they're so committed to keeping the law, they're like these legalists, that there's no love for God, there's no love for other people. They come in, they're wearing the religious robes, they're dragging this young petrified woman, and they just push them right into the middle of this group. Teacher, We caught this woman in the act of adultery. I mean, think of the tension. This poor, frightened girl. Those that were sitting around Jesus, listening to him teach. And then you got these Pharisees and scribes, and and it's in in the tense of over and over and over again. What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? I mean, it's an amazing scene. then they quote the law to Jesus. Verse 5. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Now when they were saying the law, they were looking both at Leviticus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 22. Let me put Leviticus chapter 20. It says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now notice in this, it doesn't say what type of death. It just says they should be put to death. But notice who should be put to death. Both the woman and the man. But now let's drop down to Deuteronomy chapter 22. And in Deuteronomy chapter 22, it says, if there is a betrothed virgin... Betrothed meaning engaged. If there is a betrothed virgin, and and think about this. In the first century, what was the age of a woman when they would be betrothed? 13, 14, 15? This is a young girl. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring both out out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stone. So we learn a little bit about this woman 
based on what they're saying. What are they saying in verse 5? They say, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, uh, so what do you say? So this was a woman, more than likely, that was betrothed, 13, 14, 15 years old, a freshman or a sophomore in high school. And they catch her in the act of adultery. Now, in the first century, convicting someone based on the law of adultery was almost impossible. Because it had to be based on the testimony of how many witnesses? Two or three. Not just that they might have been holding hands. Not that they were just looking at each other. But they would catch them in the very act. So we learn a little bit more about what's going on here. This was a setup. This was a sting. I mean, it's just as if they had set up cameras. And they had, they had gotten the man. And then they had trapped this young girl. I mean, it's as insidious and demonic as it gets. And notice, this man is nowhere to be found. Their hatred for Jesus was so great, they were willing to forsake the law which they were focused on keeping and ruin this girl's life. These religious leaders, they weren't committed to the law. They weren't committed to the Lord. They were using the law. They were using the Lord. They were using this young girl. To satisfy their own agenda. And now they're leaving this girl to fend for herself. And let me just say this. That's like the worst thing a man could do. I mean, we see that take place all the way back in the garden, don't we? In Genesis chapter (laughs) 3. Eve, what have you done? Or uh, Adam, what have you done? Lord, the woman you gave to me, she... She, she caused me to eat. I mean, not owning the sin, but blaming. This woman should have been protected in that moment. And men, that's one of our biggest responsibilities is to protect the women in our families. Here she was, caught in the act of adultery, condemned to death. In fact... When you understand scripture, she was in a place all of us are in. Because Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says what? I'll put it on the screen. For the wages of sin is what? Death. How many here have never sinned? Please don't raise your hand. We've all sinned. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so the reality is... We are, we are in the same position that this young girl is. She actually, because of her sin, she is now facing death. She was condemned to death. This is the condition we all face. The wages of your sin, what? Death. That's the first thing we see. But secondly, we see the response of our Lord. And that's wisdom. He responds in wisdom. 
Now, we said that the goal was to trap him. Look at verse 6. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. All they wanted to do was destroy, to destroy Jesus. That was their hope. That was their goal. Trap Jesus. But you've got to think of the dilemma. I mean, first of all, you have this young girl's life hanging in the balance. Certainly a dilemma for Jesus. The second dilemma is that he came into this world with a message of, of mercy and grace and compassion. So if he condemns her to death, as the law says, then what happens to his message of grace? What happens to his attitude of compassion? You'd have to throw it out. In fact, why would any sinner want to go to Jesus and confess their sin? It just means I'm going to be condemned. No one would want to do that. And we know that 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But if, if Jesus, as per the law, condemns her in that moment, we're looking at things a lot differently. But then the third dilemma is if he doesn't condemn her, he has just set aside the law and Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law. And so it's like this, this, this catch-22. What does he do? I mean, he would be accused of forsaking the law and, 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 and now be considered a false prophet. So what does he do? He gets down on a knee and he starts writing in the dirt. But you got to understand that while he's doing that, verse 7 says, and as they continued to ask them, it's in the continuous sense, over and over and over and over again. Jesus, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And he's just sitting there. And he's writing in the sand. And the question is, what is he writing? And why is he writing? The answer is very simple. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Now, there's a lot of speculation. There's probably more speculation about that verse than any other verses out, out there. I've heard, it, I've heard a lot. In fact, I'll never forget, Pam and I were relatively new uh, believers. And I remember when my pastor preached on it back in Dallas. And he said, more than likely, Jesus was writing down the names of the women each one of those men had had adultery with. There, there's others that say, maybe he was writing the Ten Commandments. Or maybe he was just naming each man in the different sins that they were responsible for. But once again, we don't know. Whatever the case, it doesn't matter. What matters is what actually Jesus said and just the wisdom of what he said. Verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them. You just, just imagine looking at him. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. I mean, so here they are. Each one of them would be holding these heavy stones. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, whichever one of you is without sin, you throw the first stone. Now, Jesus didn't just pull that out of midair. He, he actually went back once again to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy chapter 17, 
where it says that the witness of a crime that has been reported, that is a capital offense, they are the ones that are the first to throw the stone. And so Jesus gives us biblical wisdom, and I love that. It's a good reminder to us when we're asked a question, what are we going to do? The answer should be, well, let's look and see what Scripture says. So often we just want to give people our opinions. We want to be these great prognosticators. But I got nothing to give you, but let's see what the Lord says. And that's what he does. He uses wisdom here. And the fact is, the answer to his question narrows it down to one person that could throw the first stone. Jesus was the only one qualified because he was the only one without sin. What Jesus could have been saying, he could have quoted what he had said on the Sermon on the Mount in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. He says, judge not lest you be judged. He says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye when what? There's this log hanging out of your own eye. He says, remove the log from your own eye so you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eyes. But these religious leaders, they're walking around with these huge logs in their eyes. I mean, they're wearing nice robes, certainly. But, I mean, they were so full of hypocrisy. And Jesus, he turns things upside down, uses the wisdom of God's word. Jesus exposes their misuse of the law. In fact, in one statement, he leaves them powerless and he leaves them speechless. In fact, we saw it last week when, when, the, Pharise- when the, the Sanhedrin sent some, some soldiers to go and arrest Jesus. And they said, we've never heard a man speak like this before. And they said, what, are you going to follow him also? And so what happens? Let me me just tell you what, what Piper says about this. And I think it's really important. John Piper says this. He says, the point is not that judges and executioners must be sinless. He says, the point is that righteousness and justice should be founded on a gracious spirit. And if it's not, what you get is the heartless, heartlessness and hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He says, that is the point throughout the Gospels. Listen, it's not that we don't point out the sin, but with what heart and with what motivation. The point is that righteousness and justice should be founded on a gracious spirit. And if it's not, what you get is the heartlessness and hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Listen, it's easy for all of us to point things out that are wrong about other people, but with what manner are we saying it? How are we treating people? Have we missed loving God and loving others just because we want to be right and we want other people to be wrong? So Jesus, in this very moment, says, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And you can just hear the thud, 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 thud as people drop their stones. And they walk away. Look at the beginning of verse, uh, uh, it says, verse 8 says, And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the oldest to the youngest. And I believe the oldest went first because they were the ones with the most sin. 
and they just took off because they had more time in their life to sin. Jesus controls the circumstance with a few words of wisdom. And let me just say this. This is a good reminder for us to go to the Word of God for wisdom to help us in our time of need. Not go to what the culture says. Not to go to what one of the different cable news networks says. But to go to the very Word of God. And once again, I'll go back to Chris's testimony earlier. It's so easy to get caught up in all of the media, whether it be social media, whether it be, whether it be television media, or whatever it is. And then we just get all spun up and spun out versus just spending time in the Word of God and just feeding on, on the Word of God on, and, and understanding that, that Jesus is the light of the world, that He brings light to all of this darkness. And that's why we can sing, Lord, there is nothing better than you. Because there's not. So we see the wages of your sin, death. Secondly, we see the response of the Lord, wisdom. Third, the grace of your Savior, salvation. The grace of your Savior, salvation. Okay, the text doesn't tell us now what happened to the crowd that had been listening to Jesus as he was teaching before this very rude interruption. One moment Jesus is teaching them, and the next moment there's this confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders with this petrified young girl looking on. And then we see that all these religious leaders, they slink away. I mean, those that were listening, that were hanging out, they must have been in shock watching this. Look what 9 says again. He says, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. What an amazing moment it must have been for that woman. But what a confusing moment. What is she thinking? I mean, her emotions must have been a mixture of awe and relief and shame and fear. She's face to face with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. She has been caught in a capital offense. Not to mention, what does it mean now with her, her fiancé, her family, his family? But she's looking straight at Jesus. And he asks her two simple questions. Verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? I mean, I don't know if he had a little smile on his face. I would think so. It's like, where'd they go? And then he said, has no one condemned you? I love that second question. With the accusers gone, there remained no condemnation. No witnesses to corroborate the deed. People may condemn us. I want you to hear me on this. If you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Romans chapter 8.1. One of the greatest verses in the Bible. The fact is, we have been found guilty of sin. 
every one of us. And the wages of sin is death. But if we are in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation. The penalty phase has been wiped out. Why? Because Jesus Christ steps in and says, she is, she is innocent of this sin. Doesn't mean that there's not consequences. But she's not facing death. Why? Because I'm going to take her place on the cross. Because I am both just and justifier. I am going to take the penalty that she deserves. This is a woman who is saved from death. Notice what he says. She said, no one, Lord. Verse 11. There is no one here to condemn me. And Jesus says, these words are incredible. Neither do I condemn you. Going from now on, sin no more. If you are in Christ, and I pray you are, because you turn from your sin, that's called repentance, and embrace Jesus as your only hope for eternal life, then even though you may have had a life of sin, and for some of us, like me and Pam, a lot of life of sin, once you're in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation. You're no longer condemned to death, but you've received something you don't deserve, eternal life. That's called grace. You don't receive what you do deserve. That's called mercy. In Christ, there's no condemnation. And it's because of the finished work Jesus would do on the cross that you have been set free. And here you see the grace of our Savior Neither do I condemn you. Her sin was set aside, but not only her sin, all of our sins were set aside because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He gave her because he knew he was going to the cross to suffer in her place. This is why we see that Jesus is perfectly just because someone must die for our sin. There must be a sacrifice for sin. And that's what Jesus came to do for us. This is the gospel. Now, when you think back on the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees, what do you see? You see a vindictiveness? You see a spitefulness. You see a spiritual righteousness. You see a condemning attitude. So I want to contrast that with the attitude of Jesus. I think it's so helpful for us. It's a, it's a greater understanding of who Jesus is. because, And I've said it many times. The more we understand Jesus and his grace, the greater our desire to worship him. That's why, I mean, I love our worship time. But the worship does not set the table for the message. The message should make us know the Lord much better so we become better worshipers because that is his desire for us that we would worship him in spirit and truth. So let's look at four words that describe the attitude of Jesus. First of all, understanding. He was understanding. He was not fooled by the circumstances. He was not deceived by the religious talk or their unrighteous actions. He wasn't even deceived by the actions of the woman. He saw the worst that life had to offer. And he was not astonished by it. You know what's great about that? It means that we can go to him and he understands. 
See, so often when we sin, we want to run from Jesus. But that is the opposite of what we should do. It's a time to run to him because he's understanding. He knows. He cares. First word, understanding. Second word, compassionate. Compassionate. Jesus saw this woman and he had compassion on her. In fact, throughout scriptures in in, in the gospels, you see he saw the multitudes and had compassion on them. He knew her sin. He understood her shame. But he also saw her potential. And because of his compassion, we once again can have confidence to go to him, not run from him. Third, forgiveness. Forgiveness. He was forgiving. In Christ, we are completely forgiven. Notice verse 11. He says, neither do I condemn you. She has been made absolutely cleansed by the grace of God. And this is not an easy forgiveness. It's not a cheap grace, as Bonhoeffer talks about. Someone had to die for the sins of this woman. Let me ask you, as this woman is standing here knowing at any moment she could be stoned, literally buried up to her waist and then stoned to death, and all of a sudden she's standing here alone with with the Lord, and he says, neither do I condemn you. What might her countenance been like in that moment? Think about it. See, it's when we understand the gravity of our sin and the wages of our sin, that's when we should all of a sudden realize how great grace is. We should be overwhelmed by God's grace. We should be floored by God's grace. And certainly, it was, it, that would have been the case for this woman. Do you think she was changed? How could she not be? But again, this is the story of every one of us who are in Christ. Here's the fourth word. Challenging. I bet you don't think of that word for Jesus often as an attitude. But notice what he says. He says, and from now on, sin no more. She was forgiven But she was also told to go and do better. Now, notice what Jesus does not say here. He doesn't say, go and sin no more, and I will not condemn you. See, that would be devastating. You mean, I have to now live a perfect life to not be condemned? No. You are not condemned because of the grace of God. But because of the grace of God, it's now time to live a different life, to live in view of what God has done for you. There is no hope in having to live a sinless life to try to gain access to God. He is effectively saying, I forgive you on the basis of my death, on the death of my son. And he says, because you are forgiven, stop sinning. Live a different life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Because you are forgiven, stop sinning. He should want to live a different life. We're not going to be sinless. But in Christ, we will sin less. And when we do sin, we will confess it, go to the Lord, and, and, and repent, turn from it. You know what I love? God was no longer 
her condemning judge, but now he was her forgiving father. And in Christ, God is not a condemning judge. He is a forgiving father, and we can rest in that. So as our worship team comes up, there's really three groups of people here that I just want to end with. And, and, and those three groups, first of all, you have that, that learning crowd, the ones that witnessed everything that went on, but it seems that they went away. Maybe having never heard the message of grace and thus never entering into it. What a sad statement. But then you have this religious crowd. They were sinners like the woman. But they went away without ever embracing grace and ever experiencing God's love. And then you had this woman. She heard the message of forgiveness. She heard the message of repentance, of turning from her sin. And she embraced that, received eternal life. Which group are you in? Has there been a time where you've turned from your sin, repentance, and you've embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior? That's what I love about 2 Corinthians 5. It says, be reconciled to God. Jesus died on the cross why? So we could have eternal life. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin who knew no sin that we might receive the righteousness of God. And the saddest thing would not be to embrace that truth and receive the grace that he offers us. So I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads right now. And I just want to, I want you to think of one word grace. Have I received God's grace? Have I received the free gift of eternal life? Because I've turned from my sin and I've embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior. So that I can hear those words, neither do I condemn you. Because in Christ, there is no condemnation. Somebody, if, if you're somebody that wants to embrace Christ today, I would encourage you to see me or David talk to us. Father, I thank you for your amazing grace. And Father, we know that it is in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our sinfulness, that you break through. And you offer us the greatest gift ever offered to man. Grace. Salvation eternal life. Lord, we thank you for that truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.